0: And before we get started in this, you might say, "Haven't we been in Romans eight long enough?" That's the answer. No, no. I, t- I tell you, this is incredible. I've been studying Romans eight, not not every day or anything like that, but I've been coming back to it time after time, year after year, for twenty two years now, and I've never ceased to be amazed. It what God shows me that is fresh and brand new and how things work together in this text. It's incredible to me. Because there's a part of me, and we all know what part that is, that wants to say, well, I got that down. And then there's a part of me that says, you are so dumb. And that's usually the Holy Spirit letting me know gently. That's how the Holy Spirit talks to me. What's wrong with you, dummy? <laughs> but loving me and letting me know, no, no, it's deeper. You could dig deeper. I've got other things to show you in this. It's incredible. And I believe personally, and again, I don't care what political views you hold. You shouldn't care which ones I hold. What matters is that Jesus Christ is coming again to be king of all things, and that's what I'm worried about. But I do have a means of stewardship myself and for you as believers in the body of Christ for how we handle the days ahead. Let me go ahead and ruin the end of the book for you. The world doesn't get better. It gets worse. And it gets so bad to the point where people are selling out other people and they're being executed for it. That's part of it. Now, thank God if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've believed in Him. You have eternal life and you get raptured out of here. And so you won't be around for that time. God has not destined us for wrath but for salvation. The Bible's very clear and shows over and over and over how that works. And it's more of what we're going to see today. But the reason why evangelism is so pressing for the church, and let me tell you this, guys, there's a lot of churches out there that aren't bothering to share the gospel at all. They're too scared. Fear has gripped them. They don't see the value in it. It's too inconvenient. They'll give all kinds of excuses and reasons as to why they're not putting themselves out there. Not even asking the question. Not even trying to start the conversation. People have got so consumed with building relationships that they forgot to talk about the only thing that matters in a relationship. And these are mistakes that the 21st century church in America is making, and we cannot afford to be a church that makes these common mistakes. Every believer will answer for how they stewarded their time and resources and gifts on earth before the judgment seat of Christ. And if we've done poorly, we won't go to hell. Understand that. That's a a done deal that's taken care of here. Eternal life is forever. But for some people, there's going to be great shame. Why am I wearing this still? Here we go. Now I speak more forcefully. Um, there's going to be great shame in those situations. We're responsible. We are. We're not just responsible, we've been commissioned. And I think that's important for us to recognize. We have a responsibility and a commissioning from the Lord himself for how we steward our time on this earth. And so before we dive into this and you say, good grief, why are we going over this again? Because we have to. Especially for this week and for next week because the stuff we're dealing with week has been so badly misinterpreted over the years that every commentary you pull is going to give you some wacky direction that's going on. We've got to sort that stuff out so we understand the goodness of God and how he's working in Christians. So that's for next week. Come next week. Yes? Okay. I want to give you two things to write down just to keep in the front of your mind. Two questions that you need to ask anytime that you open any passage of scripture. It's going to help you better come to what the original author meant when they wrote it. That's what matters. It doesn't matter what this text means to me. Because I can make any text mean anything. Number one is, is it consistent with the context? If you're walking along throughout the Bible, you're reading, 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 reading everything is going to flow. Everything is going to be connected. Everything is going to Run into the next part. The ideas are going to develop. They're all going to unfold. It's not some mystical, unknowable, I just can't grab it kind of thing. The Holy Spirit will show you exactly what you need to know when you need to know it through the text. But we have to be faithful. None of us would read a book and take one paragraph out of the rest of it and say, well, this means this, but everything else around it means something else. We wouldn't read a regular book that way. God communicates to us in regular reading principles even though we hold a supernatural word in our hand. He wants to be understood. He doesn't want us in a fog. He doesn't want us left up to ourselves. And so he's very clear how he communicates. So some of the questions we would ask is, what was Paul talking about previously? And where does he go next? Very, very important stuff. Is the present verse a logical connector And how does it serve as such? We can't afford to take verses out of context. The second thing that we would look at, is it coherent with the truth? In other words, does it contribute to the greater harmony of the scriptures? God's word is like a perfect spider web, a perfect one. Each interval between connecting points is exact imperfect. And, and when you inflate one or detract from one, you cause stress and strain throughout the whole. Does that make sense? And this is how you figure out what a cult is. Because they've got big holes that shouldn't be there in their spider web. No, the Bible is perfectly consistent. If it's true, then it's true on all fronts and all facets. There's not one part that's more true than another. All of it is inspired from beginning to end. Another part we would ask is, is it sufficient in explaining existence and reality, failures and successes? Does it have a reason why we deal with what we deal with? What is the issue with suffering? How'd that start? The fall. And what happened at the fall?
1: The introduction of what? Sin. And
0: death. Is that a good explanation for all the garbage we deal with? Then why do so many people want to cover up those first 11 chapters of Genesis and say, well, that's just a real good story to get us going. Let's start in chapter 12. That doesn't help anybody. Because what you've done is you've just destroyed who God is, creator, who man is, the created, what our problem is, sin that has brought in a consequence that none of us want to deal with, which is death, and that is a reality. That's what sets the course for understanding Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lived a spotless life and died a criminal's death when he was completely innocent on all fronts so that you and I could go free. You cannot understand that if you don't know why he had to die. You'd be amazed how many people know that Jesus died, but they don't know why he died. They just know that he did. And so this is what has developed the whole teaching. Well, he was just a good teacher. Anybody here want to kill a good teacher? No, there's obviously something more to it. Well, he teaches real good, but we got to kill that guy. That doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. So the question is is it consistent with the context? Is it coherent with the truth? Does it all fit together? You with me? Here's a problem that we deal with. Mitch, go to the next slide. I want this coffee cup. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. (laughs) You ever notice that? I can do all things. I'll take that verse and make it mean whatever it wants, right? Because God helps those that help themselves. Anybody know where that's at in the Bible? Second Hesitations. It's a good book. You should read it sometime. Because what we're dealing with today is one of the most misrepresented verses that I've ever seen in my life. Now, I say this and I'm also going to tell you this. Hobby Lobby's made a lot of money off this verse, okay? And we bought into it. I have this You know, my wife, I love this verse. I love this verse too. Great, so we got it hanging up in our kitchen. Okay, so I'm not knocking it. But the question is, is do we interpret it correctly? So, trivia quiz, are you ready? This your first time here today or your first time here in a long time? You haven't been listening on the live stream. You need to pray about that. But you are not held responsible for what I'm getting ready to ask you, okay? What is Paul talking about in Romans 8? Don't look. Eyes up here, eyes up here. Cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. Don't be like that. What is Romans 8 about? What? Evangelism?
1: What? Living the Spirit-filled life is the beginning of it. Oh. Thank you, brother. Everybody hear him? Glorification. Our
0: glorification. That's what it's talking about. And he's talking about the subject of glorification because what's happening?
1: No. What? Persecution. Suffering. People whose kids
0: are getting thrown to the lions are having a hard time Wrestling through the reason, why has Jesus not come back and rescued us? Why is he not here dealing with this? How could the world get so terrible that I find myself in this situation? Where's he at? How come he hasn't shown up? Who gave this guy all this power to come in and persecute us and kill us and destroy us? I mean, they had everything going on. It wasn't just death. It was people being blackballed from unions. I can't find work because of my belief in Jesus. So I can't even earn a paycheck. They're just gonna starve us out.
1: It was a lot of hardship. It was a
0: lot harder than what we have it now. It's a lot harder than all this peer pressure and hate mongering that we've got going on in our world right now. Make no mistake, guys, this whole thing is orchestrated. Make no mistake, the enemy is not surprised. When it talks about that he is the God of this world, that word world means cosmos, and it is a carefully constructed system of which he has threaded together. And he spent a lot of years doing it. He hates Christ. Understand this, guys. So when we get this idea in our minds, we have got to keep suffering, glory, suffering, glory, suffering, glory, that glorification is the answer to our suffering. Now we have to watch this, okay? So everybody got your Bibles, Romans 8, yes? Chapter 8, let's start in verse 15, because this is when we really start to turn the corner into the glorification section. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a what? Of spirit of adoption. You need to know this. When you have received the spirit of adoption, that doesn't mean that you have been adopted. Does that make sense? You have the spirit of adoption. Now last week we talked about The benefits, the blessings of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And one of the big things we talked about was the sealing ministry. Why? Because he is a pledge of our redemption to come. Everybody remember that? So the Holy Spirit residing in every believer in Christ. When you hear the gospel message, you're under conviction of your sin. The Holy Spirit is doing that work. And he is trying to get you to come to terms with yourself and the utter bankruptcy of your life and what you're able to do to save yourself from a certain destiny in the lake of fire. And he is presenting the fact that a man who did not deserve to die stood in your place, died on the cross, died for your sins, and he could do so perfectly because he's God in the flesh. And now, because he is resurrected and lives forever unto God, he extends to you the free offer of salvation, says, I did all the work for you. Will you believe? I want to give you eternal life as a free gift. That's the gospel, okay? With that in play, you now have to move into this situation of something has changed in me. Is it always readily evident on the outside? No, it is not. But the fact is, is he deposited his spirit so that he could begin changing you from the inside out, not from the outside in. This is why we should not be judging the behavior of Christian. Well, he's doing this, so he must be going to hell. That makes no sense. We're gonna take into account all the good things that he's been doing lately and that'd be evidences of the spirit. No, he did something bad. He's just done. Because we love the bad things for some reason. We are not judges. Don't judge people. You don't know somebody's eternal destiny. That's impossible. So when we walk into the situation, we find that not only have we been sealed for the day of redemption, not only has God given us a spirit to change us from the inside out, but another ministry is the fact that he is guaranteeing I am coming to get you. That's the whole point. So now look what he says here, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, heirs also of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Now watch it, if, if, don't lose this, this is so critical to what we're going to see. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. As a believer in Christ, you are automatically an heir of God. That's a given, free gift, period. That's part of the package. But notice that being a co-heir with Christ is contingent upon what? Suffering. It's the idea that when you are seeking to submit yourself to Jesus, and if we want to take a first century church, Peter and John approach, The authorities are coming in and wanting to crack us over the head and play a game of whack-a-mole with all of us. We endure that. In fact, it says they went away rejoicing that they had been found worthy to be beaten for His name. And you think, what are they smoking? That's weird. They don't have to be smoking anything. What they do understand is that the Lord keeps great reward and praise because they are living lives that are counterculture to the way this world has been orchestrated. And it is glorious in the sight of the Lord. Because they're coming to the point where saying, you know what, the only thing that matters is truth. Jesus Christ is the truth, period. Come what may. So notice, if you suffer for Christ, if you understand that when the rubber meets the road, I'm not going to go the direction that the media does, I'm not going to go the way that all these fools who believe in this woke theology are going to go. I'm not going to secure. Q, what is Q? Have you guys seen this stuff? Q, we are the saviors of the world. I'm really disappointed that you're saving. The world is not getting better. There's this whole movement that's going on. And you can break it down point by point. That That contradicts the word. That contradicts the word. That contradicts the word that contradicts the word. And some Christians are buying into this because they want their kingdom now. And it's all about them. The Bible says if we suffer, then we will be co-inheritors with Christ. Now, I don't want to spend too much on this. I got a ton to cover. Good gravy. Moving on here, for I consider, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You can't even do it. You put it on a measuring scale, future glory is always gonna outweigh present suffering every time, every time. Now notice, Paul's saying, you may not be experiencing that right now. Trust him, trust him with it. I'm telling you the truth on this. You've got to trust him with it. Moving on, verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Everybody see that? That's a point in time because the revealing of the sons of God is the fruition of the deposit of the spirit of adoption. This is when the sons will be made known. Son is a term that is used in scripture to speak of a ranking an awesome ranking for people who were faithful. It's not just the fact that you believed in Jesus and you're a child of God now, that's very much true. And depending on the context, sometimes we are called sons because every single believer has the potential to be a son or a daughter of God. But it's only those who are faithful that get this opportunity. Now watch with me. It says here, For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope of what? That the creation itself also will be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory. Everybody see the word glory? Of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit. Remember what first fruits are. It's an initial deposit of praise to God with an expectation of his blessing for future things to come. Doesn't that sound like the spirit of adoption? Doesn't that sound like he's been deposited into our hearts for a guarantee later that he is a pledge for a future time? Everybody see how this works together. It's all talking about the same thing. And so he says here, I got to get into the light. There. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. And what is the adoption of sons? The redemption of our body. Do you realize that you've been bought with a price? Look at the end of 1 Corinthians 6 sometime. Just write it down right now. You don't have to go there. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You've been bought. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. And it's so that it will all culminate in a day where the adoption of sons takes place. What is that? It's when my body is redeemed off that earth. We call that the rapture. It is when we are caught up to meet him in the air, we are then saved from the presence of sin completely. Praise God for that day. So notice, this is all talking about a glory situation. Verse 24, for in hope, We have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes what he already sees. There's a difference between having the cheeseburger in front of you and anticipating the getting of the cheeseburger. Everybody with me? Okay, Yeah, Mark is with me,
1: definitely. Hopefully you like cheeseburgers. If you don't,
0: it's okay. But there's something about, mmm. I just can't wait to eat, right? You're kind of licking your chops and the whole deal. There's another thing to actually have it in front of you and being enjoying it. You're no longer anticipating the greatness of the burger. You have the burger. What it's saying is, is we don't have the burger yet. The burger's promised. The burger's been ordered. The burger is cooking. But there will come a time at the rapture. We are given the burger. And we're going to say, praise God. Why is that? Because if you live your life faithfully to the Lord now, you get a better burger. Everybody gets a burger. And it's going to be a great burger. But if you live your life faithfully now, it's going to be a bacon double cheeseburger with barbecue sauce. Everybody with me? Don't tell me I'm not meeting you where you're at, because I know that I am. Okay? So verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, pay attention to this, guys, because it's so important that you grasp this because this is so integral to the context. Look what it says. With perseverance. Everybody see the word? With perseverance,
1: we wait eagerly for it.
0: In other words, it's coming, but you got to stick with it. It can be everything that God desires for it to be when it meets its fullness. Anybody ever ordered something at the drive thru window and got mad and drove away? Man, my dad—my dad was infamous for doing that. I remember a couple times he did that. Like, Baby, you, don't want to take too long. you know, like. I was anticipating
1: that burger. There was no perseverance, and because there was no perseverance.
0: You got Taco Bell, I don't know. (laughs) You still got something, but man, it wasn't what it could have been had you stuck in the line there, right? Perseverance, persevering, sticking with it. I would never deny Christ. If they revoke our tax-exempt status as a church, you're gonna deny Christ? If they wanna come along because you believe in Jesus and confiscate your property, you're gonna still hold fast to Christ? If you have to be there like Peter, who who watched some people crucify his wife right in front of him. And all he could say to her is, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. That's all he said. And then when they came to crucify him, he said, I'm not even worthy to die in the same direction as my Lord. Crucify me upside down. And this is where all the Satanists get the upside down cross from. It's very interesting. All their spooky language and, and all that stuff actually comes from the Bible in church history. 666. It's in Revelation where you got it from weird when they're ready to put your family to death
1: we live in america that would never happen don't be a fool it's coming guys it's coming we're we're
0: promised it the bible already tells us it's on its way we don't know how far it will get with us before we're raptured but here's what i know If we lose sight of Christ, it will be detrimental to us in glory because we will be very much like Moses. Had I known how good the land looked, I wouldn't have taken my frustration and smacked that rock when you told me to speak to it. Please, God, let me inherit this land with everybody else. And God said to him, I've made up my mind. Don't speak to me about this issue anymore. Even Moses didn't inherit the promised land. Was he still saved? Yeah. Still go to heaven? Yeah. Still had all the guarantees. But as far as what rested on him for personal faithfulness, it was not there. Especially because he had great revelation about the Lord and should have been much more obedient than everyone else. Great revelation comes great responsibility. So now watch this. Verse 26 In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, uh, what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What's it saying? It's saying when you come to times of persecution and you're groaning because of your present situation and you don't know how to call out to God, God has already supplied the Holy Spirit to call out to God perfectly for you. So it's nothing you need to freak out about. Because here's what you'll find. When you get persecuted or when you're suffering in some way and you don't know how to talk to God, immediately there's a lot of people think, oh my gosh, I've lost my salvation. You haven't lost your salvation. God is still your present help. You just don't know that he's there if you don't know Romans 8. You see what I'm saying? And so what he's trying to do is constantly give reasons, constantly give reasons of why people need to persevere in looking forward to this hope with their present situation. Does everybody see that context? Am I lying to you? OK, now we can step forward. Everybody got your waiters on? Here we go. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Everybody see God causes. Does everybody see that? You can only find that in two English translations of the Bible. This translation in the New Living Translation, which is more of a paraphrase. And what you find is the reason why it was put in there was more for theological reasons than it was for exegetical reasons. In other words, deriving it from a word, they came with a thought of what it should mean. And so the idea of God causing all things to work for good, does God cause evil? That's part of all things, is it not? And so we've got to ask ourselves a question, Why does that happen there? And I look at all these other translations of the Bible and I don't see it that way. Why is it different? Well, everybody see the works word. Everybody see that? And we know that God causes all things to work. Everybody see that? They've taken that word and they've split it in the Greek. And the idea is, is they've made it works here, but they've also used it for a reason, to use it for causes as well. It only occurs once, yet they fit it in there twice. And so that's something that I couldn't jive with, okay? Now, I got, if you know what an interlinear is, anybody know what an interlinear is? It's where you open it up to a text of scripture and you've got the English that goes along there. And one amazing thing is they tell you what the Greek words are under it and they tell you all the grammar and things that you would need to know under that as well. And what you find out is when this comes along and God, and when it hits causes, it's like blank Greek, blank Greek, blank Greek, blank Greek. It just gives you a bunch of blanks underneath there of no Greek and it doesn't pick up again until the idea of work. So immediately I was like, okay, that's weird. Why is it like that? There's been a lot of problems in translating this passage, or this verse in particular. In fact, there are eight possible translations of it. Now, if I'm recalling correctly. No, that's not
1: what I needed. Okay. (laughs) The question is, is, are all
0: things the subject? Or is God the subject here? God is the subject. We know that. Because we're talking about all things working for good. Only God can do that. Or let's say it this way. Since he's the creator, he has to be over all things in order to be able to orchestrate all things, yes? You think that God was standing back approvingly as Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. You think he looked at that and goes, you know what? You guys selling him into slavery and treat him the way you have? That's totally according to my will. I would say no, because it was evil. However, we find at the end that Joseph lets him know, what you meant for me as evil, God has used it for good. God is so powerful that he can take evil situations that people commit of their own free choice, and he is not surprised by anything. And he can reach into history and he could orchestrate and mold such circumstances in order for them to come out in glorifying situations. Now, time out for just a second. Everyone who's a Christian is going to experience glorification. It's going to happen. It's not just that faithful Christians get on the bus for the rapture and everybody else stays at the station. We'll see you guys on the other side of the tribulation. Have a good day. That doesn't happen. Everybody goes. But what your experience and fellowship looks like in eternity with the Lord is contingent upon your faithfulness here. And that's why the call for perseverance was issued. If everybody's cup looked the same and everybody drank the same thing, why would he call for you to persevere? Wouldn't it just be automatic? Everybody see that? But it's not. Everybody may be a heir of God, but not everybody is going to be a co-heir with Christ because suffering is contingent upon that. So this verse would probably be better translated that God, we know that God can work all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Now, trivia question. Is this a promise?
1: Why not? Isn't it telling us the truth? Okay. Tell telling us the truth, so that's promise, right? Let me ask you this. Does it have a requirement? Oh.
0: See, here's the problem. Everybody says, maybe this has been you. It's been me, okay? I'm guilty of this. It'll all work out in the end. You ever done that? It'll all work out in the end. I mean, it, you know, it's going to. I mean, I, I've just Run up a ridiculous amount of credit card debt, you know. I'm shacking up with my 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 significant other here, and you know we we just stole a car. And I mean, you know, this all gonna work out in the end, is it? Yeah, it's all gonna work out to jail in the end. That's where it's gonna work out. It's gonna all work out in problems in the end. That's what's gonna work out. But somehow we come to this optimism. Because we think sometimes that just because we have eternal life that God is okay with anything that we do wrong. Is that God? No. Here's the example. Look at the Old Testament. Did he love the children of Israel? Yes. Did he discipline them when they sinned? He did. Guys, understand this. Our Father loves us insanely. And he understands that if we would just get a short glimpse of the greatness with which he loves us, it would so overcome our hearts where we would fall on our knees and we would say, God, I don't want anything but what you want for me.
1: But then there's the world and then there's
0: people's expectations and everything starts pulling us apart. It starts to overshadow that love he has for us. His love has not stopped. And he wants us to recognize you cannot be in this malaise of just living life to serve yourself. It will end in destruction, even for the Christian. We talking about hell? No. I'm talking about incredible dissatisfied, incredibly overcome with grief, incredibly disappointed. I'm talking about it's going to be insane when we get there and say, good grief, there could have been so much more, but I loved me more than I loved him. What is the contingency here? For those who what? For those who love him. Here's a question, do you love him? Now, I had some scriptures written down, but in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through them, but let me give them to you. If you want to look at it, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8-10, through 10, you can look at it. But the point I was going to make is that when we see the idea of all things, that are there, all things. It's talking about all created order. It's talking about the idea that all things will be placed under his feet and that's the way that that Greek word is used over and over again. Panta is p a n t a. It's using the idea of all things coming under the headship of Christ. Him ruling over all things is the idea. Well, what does it mean? It means that he can orchestrate all of creation for good.
1: But there is a contingency And that is, we have to love him.
0: Now, if you pull commentary off the shelf time and time again, well, if you're a believer, you do love him. If you've come to faith in Christ, you automatically love him. I'm here to tell you that is not what the Bible teaches us. Not at all. Now, that may be a little shocking for you, but don't take my word for it. I want you to see it for yourself. Now, if you want, put a finger here and turn with me over to John. John 14, we'll start with one that might be familiar. I bring it up often, just to see how some of you will react. But I bring it up often, John 14. If you want to write these down, please do. John 14, Jesus is talking to the 11. Judas is already left to go and betray him. So you've got the 11 left. Those that we know are believers, okay? Here's what it says. Look at verse 21. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them
1: is the one who what? Stop. He's talking to the 11. Are they believers? They are. Don't they automatically
0: love him? No. They don't. They might be really appreciative for what Jesus has done or that he's going to do for them at this time. He's going to die on the cross. They don't fully understand that. We find that out. They didn't fully understand his resurrection. He had to rebuke them. Can you imagine resurrected Jesus walking through a wall and the first thing he does is rebuke you because you didn't believe he was going to raise? You talk about someone's going to scare your eyebrows off your head. Good grief. That's insane. But notice, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the person that loves me. Why? Because your heart has valued his truth over your own. Or what you choose to accept is true. Watch how he goes on with this. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Notice that there's an increase in greater intimacy with the Lord. You're growing in your fellowship experience with him because you've trusted his word and you've applied it to your life. Look at verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot. Thank you for that, John. That's good. Said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Notice that even Judas, not a there, understood that it was something special. Everybody see that? How is it that you're going to show us something and not everybody's going to see it? Now watch, he answers that question. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone, what? Loves me, he will keep my word. That tells you what his commandments are right there. You will hold fast to his word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. How does Jesus define love?
1: Obedience. Let's not make a mistake about this, guys.
0: Obedience. He has given us these 66 books to know him and know what he's done for us that we will fall greater in love with him by serving him. He's given us an infinitely better way to handle every situation. There's no part of our lives that we struggle with that he has not touched. He's always asking the question in every situation, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Well, how do I trust you, Lord? Know my word and apply it. Now, that's not just a singular instance. If you turn over one chapter to 15, after he talks about what it is to abide, I am the vine, you are the branches, everybody remember that one? But it's interesting, he sums it up with something. Look at chapter 15, verse 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. In other words, as you are agreeing with him and applying it to your life, taking his commandments and obeying, you find that you remain with him, abide in him. You make your home in him. Guess what? He turns around and he makes his home in you. It's all talking about a greater experience that takes place. He says here, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What's he telling you there? He's telling you that how Jesus Christ lived his life is a perfect model for you and I to look at as what it is to trust the Lord in every situation. That's why we study the life of Christ. We study the life of Christ because Christ wants to live his life through us. Everybody see how that works? Yes? Who's asleep?
1: Okay, just Judy. Good. Just kidding. Everybody turn to Jude.
0: Anybody know what Jude's about? Hey, Jude. Is that what we're talking about? No, but that's what you were thinking, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Tell you, man. Paul McCartney needs to talk to Jude on here because his book is a little depressing. Because here's what he's talking about here. Antagonists and false teachers in the church. He's talking about churches that are are on the verge of apostasy, falling away from the faith or not persevering and all the dangers that are coming in but he says something incredibly interesting at the end when he is writing to encourage these believers. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, saved or unsaved? Saved people, are they greatly loved by God? I mean, isn't that what beloved means? You are loved by God unconditionally? Absolutely. There's no question about God's love for us. But look what it says. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Everybody see that? Why would a believer need to keep themselves in the love of God? Because it's possible not to obey God and therefore you're not keeping yourself in the love of God. Everybody see that? Now notice what he ties it on to. Watch the text. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Does everybody see that that's future? That you're waiting anxiously for it? Keep yourself in the love of God because there's something coming. We call that glorification. Everybody see that? It's the same idea as Romans 8.
1: Because God will work all those things for good for those who love Him. Now.
0: We don't have time to look at another, but I can give it to you to write down. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. And you know it's talking about glorification because it talks about the outcome of our salvation, the salvation of our souls, and that is glorification. So you can look at that on your own. Now, I want to give you an interesting example of what it means to love God and an example of failure, an example of success, so that we get it more in our minds to understand this. Because you might say, okay, we're we're talking about that he works all things for good for those who love God. What is his purpose? What is his purpose? Right? For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Let me ask you a question. What did the context of Romans 8 tell you his purpose is? The adoption of what? The adoption of the sons. The revealing of the sons of God. That's his purpose. He wants every believer to have an amazing showing at the judgment seat of Christ for the adoption of sons when that spirit of adoption is brought to fullness. And now you are graduated, if you want to say that, into glory, but you graduate summa cum laude. That's the difference. Everybody graduates. Some people graduate with honors. And he wants every believer to graduate with honors, every single one. He didn't just save us so we wouldn't go to hell. He saved us for great things for his glory. So now with that being said, I want to show you a couple of examples here. Take your Bible, Old Testament, 1 Samuel, chapter 13. And 1 Samuel 13 picks up in a very interesting place. Because you're dealing with King Saul. He's the first king of Israel. Okay? Now, you might already come to this with, oh, I know about Saul, that guy, right? Saul was a guy who just couldn't seem to get it all together for the Lord for some reason. The Lord brought him in as king, installed him as king. We know from Deuteronomy chapter 17 that any king that came into Israel had to handwrite the first five books of the Old Testament. And the Levitical priests had to check their work for accuracy and they were to keep that with them and that was their instruction booklet for how to rule always. So he's he's a knowledgeable guy. He couldn't have the kingship if he hadn't done this, okay? He knows about how God works. But all of a sudden, the Philistines want to fight against Israel. They're getting ready to go to battle. They're in this place called Gilgal and he was told by the prophet Samuel, I want you to wait. I'm going to make an offering when I get there and the Lord will bless this opportunity, we will go in and we will conquer these people. It'll be good. Wait for me, okay? So chapter 13, where are we at? Verse 11. Sorry, forgive me because I didn't give you all the verses up here. Saul doesn't wait. Saul experiences pressure from the people because they're starting to scatter and leave. And so he goes ahead and he offers the burnt offering. And kings were not allowed to offer the offering. They're not allowed to do that. It was a very big uh uh-oh. So now watch this because it's very interesting. Right after he does it, Samuel shows up. Now that was convenient, wasn't it? That's usually how it is. Well, nobody's going to do this. I've got to do something. And then we venture into disobedience. The next thing you know, the solution that we needed comes up behind us. I hate it when that happens to me. Verse 11, but Samuel said, what have you done? Now watch Saul's reasoning. And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering for me, there's reason number one. And that you did not come within the appointed days, because it's your fault, Samuel, that I disobeyed the Lord. There's number two, right? Everybody see how it's blame shifting? Number two. Look at this next one, three. And that the Philistines were assembling at micmash In other words, their numbers were growing. I had to do something. We got to get the blessing of the Lord in here somehow. Somebody's got to do it. Everybody see that's picking yourself up by your bootstraps, stepping into a lane that's not yours. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now, pay attention to his reasoning. If I don't step forward and get this offering sacrificed and burnt, God's not going to bless this. Was his move disobedience? So God ain't going to bless it anyway, is he? Everybody see that. Everybody recognize that that's a venture into religion? If I don't do these things right here, God's not going to bless it. We don't do things to get God's acceptance. We have God's acceptance, and that's why we can joyfully do things. A complete mess up in the relationship. A complete misunderstanding of God, of all things. Now, here's what's amazing. I forced myself to do... You know what that means? That means that his conscience told him, no! And he said, be quiet. Yes. The Holy Spirit has given us our consciences to let us know, don't do that. And when we violate our consciences, sin has crept into the picture. So he had to force himself beyond what his self, his person, his conscience was telling him in order to disobey God to try to get this offering through so that we can get this battle on so that we can get the blessing of the Lord going in. This is not somebody who's operating out of love for God. They're trying to just find a solution to their problem. We don't want to experience any suffering in this situation because if the Philistines do come down and if they start a battle with us and we weren't supposed to start it until we offered the burnt offering, we might get hurt. Do you realize that Jesus Christ went to the cross? He never sinned. He never saw sin as a better option than dying. That's how serious this is. I love Job's words even in his terrible condition though he slay me yet I will trust him. I may lose my life in the process but you know what you will not call me unfaithful to my great God and savior. That will not be something they put on my tombstone. Not he died because he sinned, he died and was faithful. So be it. Guys there are much better things in this life. I don't know if we recognize that. If our hope is only in this life we are people to be most pitied. So look at verse 13 Samuel said to Saul You've acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of Yahweh your Elohim, which he commanded you. For now, Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Stop. If Saul wouldn't have made this mistake and forced himself to violate his conscience in disobeying the Lord, it would have been his kingdom that was established forever. Everybody noticed that he forfeited future greatness. Does everybody see that? And how did he do it? He disobeyed the Lord. You know what that evidenced? You do not love me. Now here's the thing. Does God love Saul unconditionally? Absolutely he does. Oh my gosh. God's heart was the one breaking when this happened. That's how much he loves us. And that's why he constantly encourages greater and better things. Choose a better way according to my word. That's why I've given it to you. All Saul could see was the things right in front of him, not the things out ahead. And it cost him a future reign of a kingdom. And he died a terrible death. Now pay attention to the next verse. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not endure. Yahweh has sought out for himself, now watch this, a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Because what God is looking for is people that are after his heart. Now, just so that we grasp the full-orbed understanding of this, now turn over into the New Testament to Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And go to chapter 13, and this is where we'll end so that we understand exactly what's going on here. This is a recounting of Paul, the history of Israel, talking about moving forward to the Messiah. We're going to look at verses 20 and 21. I'm sorry, 21 and 22,
1: forgive me. Acts 13, verses 21 and 22. It says, they
0: asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And this is a frightening verse. This is a frightening statement. After he removed him, yikes. And why did he remove him? Disobedience, because it was ultimately evidence that Saul was not someone who loved the Lord with all of his heart. That's what it came down to. So notice, after he removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Concerning whom he also testified and said, "I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart." And why? And what qualifies that? Pay attention to the text. What qualifies the idea of somebody who is a man, a woman that's after God's heart? Look what it says: "Who will do all my." Will to be someone who loves God. Remember, God unconditionally loves us, every person, lost or saved, doesn't matter. But the question we need to ask this morning is do we love God? Are we willing to obey God? What does that look like? Doing His will? God, what do you want in this situation? How is your word spoken to this situation? To be after his heart is to be obedient to him. To recognize that what my friends are telling me, what my family is telling me, what Oprah and Katie Cork are telling me is not working here. And all of these things must be rejected as worldly philosophies and answers for the sake of the God who speaks eternally. That's the difference.
1: Will all things work out for your good? Yes, if you love God.
0: They did not work out for good for Saul. Was he still in heaven with the Lord? Absolutely. He died a horrible death. And you see time and time again where people in the Bible have been unfaithful to the Lord even though he has gone to great lengths to call them to amazing, incredible things and has shown them the depths of his love for them. Solomon richest man in the world. Ended his life building altars to false gods. Think about it, guys. This is not something that is detached from us. This is something that is true and relevant right now in the here and now with everything that we're getting ready to face. Now, I say that to say this. The elders of this church have placed something before every single person in this body and that's that we've had discussion and we spent a month long in prayer asking God, what do you want for our future? What do you desire God for us to do? Not what sounds like a good idea, not what can we pull together at the last minute, not who will throw money to this, that's not what we're asking. None of that stuff. We don't care what carpet and drapes look like, we don't care about paint on the wall, none of that stuff. The question is, is God, what do you want from us? How can we serve you in the future? How can we move forward? And one thing that we've recognized is is the youth in this city need to be reached. They need to know Jesus. And so we've put together a very crude and not complete by any means plan. And we've got copies out there and we even had a poster board blown up so that everybody could see what it is. And the question that we're asking to everyone here is does God move your heart to do this. In your personal devotion to the Lord and asking of him, has God laid upon your heart? Yes. This is where the future of Grace Bible Church needs to be because we need to be ministering in this way. If we are not spiritual people who are trusting him, if we are not people who are submitting ourselves in obedience to him, you will not get clear communication from him about it. Now let me go ahead and disturb your soul. We are talking about a $2 million endeavor. Oh, well, now that money's involved, we can't do that.
1: Well, with that type of price tag, there's no way the Lord would call us to that. Does that threaten him? No. No.
0: Is it important to be good stewards of your money? Absolutely. Nobody's going to knock that. The Bible promotes that. But here's the question. If God guides you in that direction, will he provide for you in that direction? Absolutely, he will. Now, I'm not trying to sway whether or not he's telling you yes or no. That's between you and him. But if we all have the same Holy Spirit bringing us all together on February 21st to have this discussion about it, we should have very minimal issues, very civilized conversation. And I don't give a hill of beans if money's even on the table or not about it. I really don't. What I want is people coming to the table saying, you know what? I sought the Lord's face on this. What do you want this local body of believers to do? How do you want us to move forward, God? I'm asking, point the direction so that I will no longer have any waffling or riff raffing about whether or not I'm gonna follow you. This is where we go and this is what we do because God has told us to do it, period, done. Are we ready to come to terms with that? Are we ready to meet God where he's at so that we will grab his hand and let him lead us? Regardless if it's this direction or another direction that somebody puts on their heart. My question is, is what does God want? And do we know it for sure? Have we settled on it? There's nothing else about that question I'm really interested in right now. I'm just interested in, have you sought the Lord? And what has he revealed to you? That's why we must obey. So that we will know his will clearly. So that we can walk forward as a body in obedience. So that we can watch him do his work through us. It doesn't matter any other way. It will fade, it will crumble, it will burn. Only what God does through us endures, period.
1: Because it's for his glory anyway. If
0: you have not picked up with sheets on one of those, uh, on that stuff, it's out there grab it. If you haven't taken the time to stop and look at that, and say, you know what? I need to take this. I need to read through it. I need to pray over it. Please. There's about 120 copies out there. Grab one. Pray over it. Or when you come to me, and say, you know what? I just couldn't come to terms with it, so I didn't pray. To me, I respect that much more than I was like, whatever God.
1: Too many people approach the Lord that way.
0: We must be faithful. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your mercy over us. Help us to recognize that in the midst of suffering and persecution, hardship, uncertainty, whatever comes along in our lives as a local body, you are a faithful and gracious God. And you have called us into a deep love relationship with you. Father, your love is incredible for us. Father, You call on us in perseverance for that future hope. Do we love You? Do we love You? I pray, Father, that the Spirit convicts our hearts this morning about where we're at. It's not that we have to obey to go to heaven when we die. You've taken care of that. But we do obey in order to grow in our relationship with You. Father, lead our church, please. Lead us as the body of Christ. May we submit ourselves willingly to you. May we surrender ourselves to whatever we're holding on to and say, God, your will be done, whatever you want. Lead us forward, please. We pray it all in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.